0: We get to do a lot of cool things here at Crack Rackets, whether it be the opportunity to broadcast some of the best college tennis that happens week in, week out across the college tennis universe. Of course, I personally had the opportunity to travel and broadcast the National Indoor Championships for the Men and Women in Madison in Seattle. We had the chance to broadcast that event on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel as well. It's such a thrill to be able to follow all of that action, call it all in person as well. Of course, here on this podcast, our great Great shot podcast, mini break podcast. We get to have so many fantastic conversations as well with so many different people we find throughout the tennis universe, whether it be fellow members of the media, whether it be the players, coaches we see competing out there day in, day out. It's what makes this job so enjoyable. It's why we take this job so seriously here at Crack Rackets. We know the sort of privilege we have to be able to have those conversations. And of course, we find it our mission to keep all of you tennis fans informed, engaged, enthusiastic about about our sport But we also get the chance to do some other very cool things. One of those very cool things, the Cracked Interviews podcast episode we have for all of you listeners today. I am joined by a man who you will know best for the work he does outside of the tennis world, but you will soon learn the thing he is most passionate about in his life may perhaps be our beloved sport of tennis. Of course, I am referring to today's guest who you know best as the co-creator of Showtime's Billions. He co-wrote Ocean's 13 and you know, co-wrote the movie rounders as well you may recognize his 30 for 30 documentary this is what they want on jimmy connor's 1991 u.s open run he's also a guy who's made the run on a couple of other tennis podcasts as well it's brian koppelman joining our show today to yes talk about his newest series super pumped at the top but then to explore the latest and greatest happenings in the tennis world in particular we talk about his passion for tennis where that comes from the opportunities for storytelling we see day in day out throughout the sport and obviously given uh, brian's tv movie background very curious i was to hear his perspective on how we can best tell the stories in tennis what the appeal of those stories are and how we can perhaps make the sport more marketable more broadly moving forward of course we geek out a little bit we talk about his 30 for 30 documentary this is what they want on jimmy connor's 1991 u.s open run we talk about some of the best americans some of the best young talent some of the best young stories la versus new york tennis and so much more it is a fantastic episode that i know all of you listeners are going to enjoy and obviously given the fact that brian's new show came out on sunday cannot express enough gratitude to him for taking the opportunity to speak with us again you're going to enjoy this one folks sit back relax obviously all the other content you can find on the website crackrackets.com but we'll save the plugs for the outro for now let's get to it here is my conversation with the co-creator of showtime's billions and super pumped brian koppelman hey crack fans Joining us on the show today for the first time is a man you all probably know best as the co-creator of Billions, writer of movies like Rounders, and now co-creator of the new show on Showtime, Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber. It is Uber tennis fan, Brian Koppelman. Welcome to the show, Brian. How are you doing today?
1: I'm great, man. I'm so happy to be here with you. Oh,
0: I appreciate you taking the time, and obviously the show comes out on Sunday, and I had the chance to watch it. I mean, for a guy who's 26, you have everything you're looking for. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Kyle Chandler, the possibility of just mountains of cocaine being used at some point in this show. Uh, it was a delightful uh, experience to watch, and I imagine it's been a busy couple of days for you.
1: It has, yeah, because the show came out uh, two nights ago. The second episode will be up this Sunday, and and uh, yeah, look... Uh, I love getting to make stuff. And this cast and crew is incredible. And This story is unbelievably compelling to me. Uh, The story of of Uber. It's really a story about uh, America and the world right now and how we view uh, business. And uh, obviously it's something I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated by as I am endlessly fascinated by the game of tennis.
0: Yeah, no, I like to hear that. Season 17, you can tell the story of Crack Rackets. We're not there yet, but eventually when you're searching for storylines, you know, a young, charismatic Jewish male from the Midwest, you can tell my story. I look forward uh, to seeing it all. But you talk about your tennis fandom. That's something obviously we want to explore today. And it was very funny. I was doing my research, listening to some of the other tennis shows you've appeared on, and you described a match you recently played as your first match back from COVID. And to me, I'm like, all right, this is a pro. He's like, yeah I'm making my return to the court this is the debut I love that framing talk to me about your relationship with this sport and obviously I know it's meant a lot to you during this pandemic as well
1: yes well I mean I've been playing tennis my whole life you know I've never been a 5-0 player I'm a 4-5 player (laughs) that's where I live like I you know beat most four O's and I never beat any five O's and the four <laughs> five I'm like a weak four or five but I'm you know I, as you know as the listeners of this show are uniquely know like you know that means you've put like to, to get to a place where you're uh, able to play even at my age 55 years old like I can still play with four fives and not be ridiculous you know it's just a you can imagine the amount of hours that I've put in on the court in my life and, uh, right, so there's no, you know, if I were talented at it, I'd be <laughs> a 5-0, right? But, but the sheer amount of time, the game just brings me back, you know. It's got elements of uh, all the sports that I love the most. You know, I'm a basketball fanatic, and I'm a golf freak, too. And uh, what's amazing about tennis is you have to work as hard physically as you do if you're playing full-court basketball, but you have to have the mental control and discipline of a golfer. And people don't um, understand this who don't really play tennis in a serious way. I mean, one of the great things about tennis is you can play it in a way that doesn't demand most things of you. Uh, you can play tennis in a, a very casual, relaxed manner if that's if that's what you want to do. But, but if you approach tennis as something Uh, you want to get better at. And, and if you kind of put yourself, one of the things I love about it is forces me to be hyper present. Like I can't, uh, if I play tennis distracted, it's not rewarding to, to me. And so, but if you want it to be that you're engaged physically and mentally fully. And I think that was a gift of the game for me during pandemic. So I've played my whole life, but I took a long time off. So I'm lucky that I played as a kid enough that, uh, I, I have strokes. I know how to play You know, look, it's one of those things you can learn late in life. And, I, and and there are guys like Steve Nash. I was lucky enough to play with Steve Nash recently. And, you know, when you're Steve Nash and you're one of the 100 best athletes of our lifetime, you can pick up tennis four years ago and look like you've been playing your whole life. But most people can't be, you know, there's something about learning strokes when you're young. That just enables you to have a certain level of um, comfort. But I took a lot of time off. I got oh, I was obese for a while, so trigger warning to anyone who doesn't uh, sorry to trigger you know uh, feels uncomfortable about that kind of thing. But I'm sure. um, six feet and I was walking around at like 260, and uh, and so I wasn't able to play because my hips would hurt or my knees would hurt. But a couple months before pandemic, I made the real conscious decision to try to get back into some semblance of shape. And tennis became a gigantic part of that. Uh, There's during pandemic, I was mostly in upstate New York, and there's a place near my house that has there's one indoor court. And so I could go to that one indoor court at night with either my son, who's a good player, or one friend of mine, who's my level. And we were all in the same bubble. And we played all the time. Uh, And then there was one pro up there who I would hit with sometimes uh, when it was nice out outside. I hit with him all the time. And I started, I got to a place where I was playing five days a week, six days a week in some way, shape or form. And not only did I end up, you know, losing a lot of weight, uh but my tennis game came back and i had the kind of concentrated focused attention on the game that i couldn't have had in another situation if if work were in a full-on mode if i were shooting so like i was able and i was able to um transform my forehand to like a modern forehand so that also required a lot of like watching it was amazing right it's also the perfect time i mean you're doing this With crack, you're like, it's the perfect moment of if anyone's listening to this, I assume everyone listening to Tennis Freak. But if you're not like it's the perfect moment, because everywhere you go on social media, you can watch as much specific tennis instruction and examples uh, about the game as you could possibly want. So I could watch hours of the progression of the modern forehand. And I can, uh, you know, think about how to apply it and, and uh, try to, you know, you could be looking just literally watching the way somebody turns. You could literally be thinking about what a unit turn means or how to apply it. And you can look at so many examples of it. So it was kind of like the perfect moment to re-engage with the sport as a player, not just as a fan.
0: No, absolutely. And a couple of things I gotta follow up on there a you talk about building the modern forehand. Are we talking going Jimmy Connors to like Rafa Nadal here an extreme grip change? What does that look like? What is Brian Koppelman's forehand because I, I was hear in early the I, inside out forehand that's your ball
1: right oh yeah, I was really pleased that Mark Lucero said that on his <laughs> podcast that that he complimented my my forehand. that was really great um well, luckily, so. Luckily for me, I grew up watching Aaron Krixtein. Okay. Sure. And he made me want to let it that inside out kind of Western grip forehand anyway. But as you know, I love talking to this audience because like most audience, most people just have no idea about any of this. But like, so like the Krixtein Borg kind of Western forehand is different than the the, the follow through. The the angle of attack where you have the head of the racket is very different. Mm-hmm. Now than it was then probably because of the equipment or whatever the reasons are that we're able to. I mean, the the way one followed through back then was always, you know, over the shoulder and kind of turning the racket over as opposed to windshield wipering it. And and so that's really a huge adjustment mm-hmm. in the way that you're thinking about and, and where you want to make contact with the I And mean, all that stuff's just different now than it was then. I mean, nobody talked about a unit turn back then. I, um, sure. In, in, in any For the way, record, you know, they
0: still don't in tennis. I don't think anyone's ever called it a unit turn specifically. I think they call it just the turn, but I know what you're referring
1: to, of course. No, man. Go look. There's like, thousands of lessons on okay. from top pros on, like, you. I could send them to you on yeah. YouTube and everything where they call it a unit turn. That's okay. sort of like a term of art now. All right. Like, right now, people are calling it that because it's not just turning. It's like, wear your hands. It's turning the whole unit, they okay, say. Okay, Sure. Uh, uh, I like it. No, I'm it. in. I, look again. I got
0: to get out on the court. This is what it's telling me. This is why my forehand's gone to shambles. Um, but you know, you talk, and, and there are again a lot of different things there. I want to follow up on. Obviously, you mentioned. Growing up a fan of Aaron Crickstein, and I am from Southeast Michigan and Jewish. If you are that, you played tennis, you obviously know who Aaron Krikstein is. But, you know, he was part of that (coughs) 1991 run from Jimmy Connors. And you directed a film, This Is What They Want, the 30 for 30, told the Jimmy Connors run through that 91 U.S. Open. More broadly, and, you know, again, because I know you have been a tennis fan your whole life, and, and you tell this story in the doc, but... Can you describe for our listeners the sort of rock star that Jimmy Connors was? And I know you look back in time and, you know, you look at the individual branding now of football players, basketball players. A lot of that comes from the individual branding you saw from people like McEnroe and former, you know, guys like Jimmy Connors as well. Were these guys rock stars? Was tennis the thing in the, in the you know, 70s, 80s, early 90s? I mean,
1: they were enormously famous. If you were a sports fan at all. I mean, if you were a fan of the culture. Sure. You knew who those people were. I mean, Borg, McEnroe, and Connors, and then Agassi were, yeah, they were as well-known as, as, as any athlete could be. I mean, you know, during that time, the NBA, for example, as everyone knows, like the Magic Johnson's first title was not televised live in most of the country. It was televised on tape. I mean, imagine that the last game of the NBA Finals is televised late. They it was not live, so like tennis, it, it, tennis had a, a huge place in the culture then, mm-hmm. and Jimmy. It's funny when you ask about my, my forehand in high school, though, even though I loved it, was a two-handed forehand. So, oh, no. Uh, Monica Sellis out there. It was w- way before Monica Sellis. It was like through <laughs> McMillan was the name of the guy who – and Gene Mayer. They were the guys <laughs> sure. who had the two-handed forehand. Um, and then, But then soon thereafter, I I switched to like the western quick thing. thing. Um, look, Connors, yeah. I, I love – David and I, my partner, Dave, he, he's my creative partner. We make all this stuff together, David Levine. He and I grew up playing tennis together, and – we, I grew up working at the US Open. So for me, those guys were larger than Chris Everett and Martina, by the way. I mean, the, the Chrissy and Martina were and Tracy Austin and Pam Shriver. I mean, these people were enormously. I mean, obviously, I was a, a freak. I could still imitate Virginia Wade's serve. And <laughs> I know what Ivan Gulagong's ground strokes look like. But sure. uh but I worked at the Open. I, I sold clothes at the Open for three years. I uh, would sneak into the locker room and stuff. And and, um when I found out, like you know, uh, uh, Andrea Jager was a uh, a Van Halen fan like me. I, I I was like, oh, maybe she'll hit with me on the court. But uh, those yeah, those figures. Well, Connors was unabashedly only about winning in a way that nobody else at that time was. He was impolite. And he was a killer. And he, I mean, you know, you looked uh, the other night at um, it was Verev who did the thing with, yeah, the, with uh, the racket and, and on the and, yeah. and, and, and and look, Connors and Mac in some way have a lot of responsibility for that I think. And as a kid, of course, I loved it when they would give these asshole umpires that much shit. <laughs> they never got physical with the with the umpires. And also back then I think the umpiring was way worse and the technology was way worse and all that stuff. Um and we were living in a society then that I think ceded much more ground to authority than it does now. So and and there wasn't as much of an imbalance then in in terms of like, you know, now when you have players earning that kind of money and they're hitting down like that. It's really gross in every way, but as a kid, you know, you loved when Connors would get, you know, when Connors is, is playing the and they're screaming at the umpire, you're, uh, you're loving it, you know, because the, you, you first of all, you're a kid who wanted to yell at the principal of your high school, right, or your yeah, middle sure. school, and so these guys are kind of like acting out in that way. But I, you know, I will say like seeing the way replays work, how often, um, how often? Look, sometimes people get stuff wrong, but there's so much opportunity to correct it now. Most of the time, and ultimately. It's on the player to control the situation and control their emotions. That's part of what, look, part of what's so difficult about tennis is that you can be warming up and make every serve and hit your forehand exactly where you want it, and you're loose and free. And then the moment it's three all and it's your turn to serve and you hit a decent serve somehow, and then the ball comes back to the service line, and you have to fucking put the ball away, suddenly your arm doesn't want to move freely. <laughs> suddenly you seize up a little bit and suddenly the ball sails. And that, you know, you can't put, suddenly you can't put on the ball or suddenly you, you look up because you want to see where the ball is going to go. And so you top and hit it. and like ultimately that's where we have to look when we look at the results of our tennis matches is that our own inability to control ourselves. And so I look at Zverev. Yeah, look, Zverev's in a doubles match. He's the best player on that court. Zverev should win that match. It shouldn't be eight, six in a tiebreaker. Yeah. So we shouldn't be in that situation, you you know, uh, and that's where I think, uh, and and as a result of that, instead of looking at himself, you know, he's, he's smashing the, the, The chair, let me ask you a question to someone who studies this and cares about it and talks about it all the time. Are you cool with him just being able to play in the next tournament and go on?
0: Well, even beyond that, and I don't know how closely you follow everything, Azura faces serious allegations of abuse, you know, uh, of a former girlfriend that the ATP is currently conducting an investigation for, but we've heard no updates on it. And to have the cloud of that hanging over him, to have this incident as well. You see that
1: behavior? Like, I don't, yeah, yeah, and, and I haven't read enough about that. But yes, horrible, terrible, should be not on the tour. And then- Imagine you're facing that, and you still you're kind of like that the you know the idea of telling on yourself. I mean, if, if someone wondered whether those allegations might be true, it certainly seems like Zverev was telling on himself there.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, I, again, it, it's so difficult because he has been typecast as the future star, right, since he walked onto the ATP tour at 18 years old. And it has not been a linear path for him. It hasn't been as clean as, you know, the rise of, say, a Roger Federer, or a Rafael Nadal. And with that in mind, I'll flip things back at you. You're a storyteller by nature. I'm curious, as you look at the future, and we'll focus on the ATP tour right now, because I know we're in the post-Serena era, seemingly for the women, but they've got a lot of stars on their hands, and it feels like there are already some
1: established personalities. I love watching their match. I mean, I love watching women's tennis. I watch it all the time. I watch them as much as I watch the men now. No, absolutely.
0: And I want to get back to that. But as you look at the the post i mean
1: you look at Barty and how smart (laughs) she is on the court it's like the most amazing thing to see somebody just be able to take people apart the way she does incredible well
0: how about the fact that it's just also so translatable across surfaces for Barty? that's the fun part is it you're just like well it's gonna work on grass and she already won a french open like good luck
1: yeah no it's true and and uh I was really – what's the woman's name, Jennifer, the from UCLA, who's has the oh, now? Oh, Brady. Brady. Like, yeah. I was so rooting – like, that big breakthrough last year, and then I was so sad she got injured, uh, and her playing against the – because I want to talk about the parent thing. I mean, her playing against the daughter of the guy who owns the Bills, who's incredible. Yeah, Jess Right, Pagula, it's so much fun. I don't know, there's so many stories, narrative. For me, I find a lot of narratives in, in women's tennis that are fascinating too. But yeah, let's talk about the ATP Well, no, concert. I think it's cleaner. And
0: again, I Which, want to get to that. But as you look to tell the story of the post-Big 3 era, and I want to quote something you said when describing Super Pumped uh, on a recent show. You said, we don't want to have them say or do anything that seems out of character with who they are in the world. Then you took a pause, and then you go, look, the show has to be fucking entertaining. And I think that's a really good point. And I think that's something tennis struggles with, which there's this perception of class and culture. At the same time, we love Nick Kyrgios. We need a dose of fucking entertainment every so often. How does tennis strike that balance best, in your opinion, moving forward in the post-Big Three era?
1: Well, I mean, we are clearly not in a post-Big Three era. (laughs) It's true. I mean, one of the Big Three is currently the best tennis player in the world. Yeah, I would argue, and the that's two best that's Rafael Nadal. Guys. That's yeah. Rafael Nadal I'm talking about. Yeah. Rafael Nadal's 15 and 0 this year, that's man. Crazy. He's 15 and 0. He's won three championships. Okay. Right at this moment, Rafael Nadal is the best tennis player in the world. The other guy is not playing tennis, so nice. I, you know, <laughs> sure. I in majors anyway. So I can't speak to whether he's still, uh, the, you know, as good as as Nadal. But but I mean, watching. Rafa this weekend too. Just do it for the third time, and the way he took care of that match—it's crazy. Uh, it's crazy how great he is. It's insane how great he is. It's 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 one of these things where. Look, Roger's my favorite of them. The watching Roger is the most beautiful thing ever. Um, but watching what what Rafa has been able to do, the way he's been able to play at this level, and just that he literally doesn't take one shot off. He doesn't take one ball off. I've never seen that since Connors really, where a guy just doesn't take one ball off. Like he, you know, most of the other greats, they're so great that sometimes they have to try to entertain themselves by doing something other than playing the absolute best shot at the absolute best moment. And Rafa never fucking does that. He just (laughs) never does it. so, in the post era, look, there are, I find it fascinating. You know, there's three Americans in the top 21 right now, mm-hmm. and yet America doesn't care. And Riley's a fascinating figure. Like, you're talking about a guy who goes to the museums uh, for real, not as a, a gag on, on weekends, mm-hmm. and who obviously reads books and is like an engaged human being. And he's the size of an action hero, like a Marvel yeah. superhero. So I think if Riley can somehow go deep enough in a major, that will have a gigantic galvanizing effect because he is a figure kind of ready for that. I think it's a shame that Monfi has never truly broken all the way through because he's like, you know, I was talking to James Blake once and James Blake said he thinks Monfi might be the world's best athlete. And like he said, if people don't understand, even who watch all this, how gifted Monfi is in every possible aspect of sport. And and you do see it, you see these moments when I mean when he made the run this year at Australia, it was so exciting because you're like, let's go, you know, like yeah. you, you just I want him to win a major so badly. Because I think that's an incredible, like I think that's an incredible story. Um, you know, I think Sitsi Pass. It's funny, two of these top, however, you know, guys, if I look at Pas and Zverev, they're both kind of villains in a way. Oh, sure. Medvedev and, too. Uh, I don't think Medvedev is much of a villain. I think he is a uh, plant. He's like uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin. He's like, <laughs> because good. he's like a, a heel face or a face heel. Sure. Like he's kind of likable. He's kind of in on the joke. Here's why. He's in on the joke. Fair. Medvedev's in on the joke. He understands when he fell down and did the FIFA thing. Like he understands the mental game he's playing. I think it seems to me he's so smart that he understands this all on a meta level. Mm-hmm. Paz really is comes across as just a whiny baby. <laughs> okay. When explain he goes that, unpack t- that for me. Well, like I, I can't like when he takes those times out and yeah. and and it it really feels like bad, it feels like he doesn't really understand what a horribly bad sport he's being sure. and, and his sort of having like, whereas Medvedev made that move, he would talk about it with a wink <laughs> and you would understand that he knows it's a dumb rule that they should change the f- rule. Yeah. He's taking advantage of it because he's smarter than the other guy. Yeah. Whereas Sysipas, it really feels like a guy who's like, uh, You know what it feels like with Sitsipas? It feels like in The Princess Bride, when suddenly Count Rogan turns and and runs away. Because it it feels like he is uh he he gets scared and he runs back to the locker room. I mean, do you think Sitsipas is I'm wondering about Sitsipas? Like sometimes it seems to me he's selfish, like when he storms off the court and takes a timeout. But I don't want to be unfair to the kid. I mean, how do you see it? Yeah. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice.
0: No, I, yes and no. I think, Tsitsipas, Poss, and I think to an extent all tennis players and, you know, it, Ben Rothenberg, when he comes on the show, he calls it main character energy. I think to an extent all of these players have main character energy because in their entire lives it's been all about them. And I also think it's worth remembering. of these kids were homeschooled growing up. They didn't have the big social cues and they just don't understand certain things that they're just so accustomed to doing are a little bit off. And I do think Stefano Tsitsipas, he's a little bit off. And obviously, this is not meant to be disrespectful. He's been super parented, right? Like, you know, his parents have been a part of every decision he's made his entire life to get to this point. And guess what? It worked. Like, shout out to the Tsitsipas family. They've got a kid who's already a Grand Slam finalist, top five in the world in tennis. At the same time, the way you described it perfectly. Medvedev will wink at the line judge as he says something funny to them, and, you know, he kind of gets it. I think Zverev is very aware, you know, hypersensitive to the perception of himself, and he lets that get in his head. Tsitsipas is just the odd duckling of the group, where Tsitsipas just beats to his own drum, and he's vlogging, and he's doing his music, and all these different things. It's not too unlike Opelka. I would just argue it's the Greek version.
1: Sure. Other than other than I think like that's what I'm saying. Other than I feel like sometimes he's just disrespectful to his opponents in a way that I don't dig. Because what I but know, I don't there's... see,
0: I don't think if that's disrespect, I think that's just him being hit. I don't think he means it as disrespect is that's what I'm trying to say is I think he's so naive about it. And so unaware that like, Oh, there's another person here on court. Who's also playing this match right now. Like that doesn't even cross his head. Well, it's that's like, fascinating. I, mean, I you've mean. opened
1: my eyes. Thanks. You've opened my eyes to watching him in a different, I'll watch him in a different way. Sure. Uh, I just don't find myself rooting for him. Whereas okay. I root for Medvedev. I, 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 you know, um, sometimes, you know, yeah. uh, and uh, has – I mean, I don't know. Has Medvedev said anything about the Ukrainian conflict? Uh,
0: he, you know, a little bit. He said – I know what Rublev
1: – I love what Rublev did. I love yeah, what Rublev did. Yeah, and
0: that is gutsy stuff. And it, it gutsy is so as fascinating hell. because, again, there's so many different personalities. You've got the F.A. – you know, Felix al Yassim, who might be the kindest human in the world. You've got Carlos Alcaraz and Yannick Sinner, where you're like, what is this here? It feels like we're just, like, beginning to – You know, I can't are,
1: wait to see Sinner. I really expected Sinner to – go further, yeah. I, I, I keep waiting. Look, it's so much pressure on him. And as I said to, you know, John McEnroe was giving him shit on one of the broad, broad, broadcasts, <laughs> Max probably, you know, one of my five biggest sports heroes. I'm a, uh, you, there's no bigger John McEnroe fan and Patrick's a dear friend of mine. Uh, and, um, but Johnny Mac was on TV going like this kid's got to win a chance win a major already. What's going on? What's taking him so long. And I texted Patrick, uh, and I just said, could you maybe maybe remind Johnny Mac that he didn't win till he was 19?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's crazy because they're so good so fast. And you just figure like, oh, yeah, they're going to win a slam. And, you know, again, it, some fun stats for you. It's interesting. You look right now on the men's side. So I, I like to make these clubs top 10, 15, 20, 25, and players who are you know, top 10 in both hold percentage, how frequently they're holding serve, and break percentage, how frequently they're breaking serve. There are four guys right now in the top 10 club over the last 52 weeks. You want to try and guess them?
1: Go ahead. You, ta- you say it. Yeah, Go I was
0: going to say It's exactly who you think it is. It's Novak. It's Rafa. It's Medvedev. And it's Zverev. But you know the two right. guys who are top 15 club, which is, you know, 15 in hold and break percentage, is Casper Rood and Yannick Freakin-Sinner. It's like right. he the numbers say it, the eye tests say it, all of these different things say it. He has been one of the eight best players in the world over the last 52 weeks, and I do think that success is coming. But yeah, you know. That's Johnny. You know, hyperbole is always
1: your friend. The, the other great thing I love to watch in terms of the narrative is and it's great if you watch Tennis Channel and and you get in a rhythm of watching it. It's it's so awesome when guys grab a hot moment. And yeah. like, what's the French guy's name? Molinar. How do you say his name? Oh, which French guy I was going to say there's a couple of them. Mal, it starts, his name starts with an M. He's like number 50 in the world. Hold on. Uh, Italian
0: Musetti. Maybe I'm thinking of the no. M's. Uh, there's a lot of good M's. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I like this. This is Man- Manorino. Oh, Manorino. Sure. Okay.
1: Like Manorino had a great run a couple tournaments in a row. Oh, he aw, got Australian to, like, open.
0: Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. And, but then after
1: the Australian open, yeah. like the next week, he got to the third round or the quarters. Yeah. Like, I was watching it and it's really fun when you watch somebody. And he had such an odd game. that yeah. guy. You know, he plays so strange. So he had a country
0: club for the next 15 years after he retires. Just that little lefty roll.
1: Yeah, but it's so fun, like sort of watching, oh, this guy's catching a moment where he's seeing the ball. He must be suddenly seeing the ball really clearly, and it's one of those great things about sport, too. Like, you know, for some reason right now, he's just making contact in the perfect place. The ball's hitting a quarter inch closer to the line. He's putting a little bit more pressure on his opponents. He probably has no idea why, and he knows it's going to go away, but he's playing it for all it's worth in this moment, and that's another thing that I love about watching The sport is is seeing people try to you know put it all together uh and and try to you know make make a run Mm
0: -hmm. no absolutely and let's flip gears i don't want to take up too much of your time but i do want to hear your thoughts on the women's side because you know us in the tennis intelligentsia i'll include myself in there who are in the day-to-day struggle and by the way there's this open seat for you on the intelligentsia council should you want it brian but um you we look at the women's game right now, Ashley Barty is undeniably exceptional. And you look at the numbers for her. She's holding over 80% of the time. No other woman's above 78%. Uh, Obviously, you look at the success she's had winning Wimbledon, winning the Australian Open, doesn't drop a set on her way to the title. You know, uh, the perception, though, amongst people who follow day in, day out, yes, she is excellent. But it's that the rest of the field, that there's not a worthy challenger. To her right now, because Osaka is not playing week in week out, and there's a lot of really, really good players right now. But you look at the last. I mean, people
1: are weeks. always trying to forward that narrative and wins yeah, okay. tennis, and I, I reject the narrative. I mean, listen, when we talk about, I mean, you talk about the most fascinating people in tennis, and Muragutha is like the top yeah. of the list. Mm. I mean, you're talking about somebody you're talking about a narrative. I mean, you're talking about somebody who's got all the qualities we just talked about of people like Opalka and, mm-hmm. uh, and Medvedev, someone who's, you know, a brilliant person, uh, somebody who's another person who's physically a Marvel superhero kind of a She's She's the movie star, beautiful person. She's, uh, you know, that she's finally able to, to go, you know, she's how many, she went three majors in her life and she's, she's incredible. And, and yes, she has other interests. Probably. She's probably not fully devoted only to tennis, but like she's a threat to me. Anytime she steps on the court that she got back into she's number nine in the world now or whatever. (laughs) It's an incredible story. Right. Mm -hmm. I, like, I don't understand why she's not in America an enormously famous person. Mm-hmm. She has every ingredient uh, that you would think her story. I mean, you're talking about somebody who went to Harvard Business School in her off time. Like, it's insane <laughs> uh, to me. And so like Murugutha is somebody I'm, I totally think is like, I'll watch anytime she's playing because I just want to figure what's going on in her head. Like, what is she thinking about? Cause she's so smart, mm-hmm. um, you know? And then we talked about Jen Brady who, you know, I love a late. I mean, and as a narrative thing, like I love a late in life for tennis, like college. Other people didn't really believe in her, and didn't really believe she had the game to get there. And then suddenly, on a huge stage, she's like really ready for it, and that forehand is just incredible. Like it would be so much fun. You you just get this. It would be so much fun to try to return that forehand. Yeah. You know, and I love I love talking to guys too who are like. Yeah, you know, I'd beat the women. It's like, dude, Jen Brady would beat you 6-0, 6-0. She would you would get no points off of her. Like
0: Sabalenka would
1: crush you physically, you emotionally, just, spiritually. Yeah, 100 Yeah. You would get no point. There would be no points for you. Like yeah. forget about it. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I I've played with division 1 like women who play D1. And they're so f- <laughs> good at tennis. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you know, people don't really um uh, understand that. But Barty what's so great about Barty is that just she's a killer, you know. And and elegant too in the way she handles herself. I mean whatever goes on in the locker room, like most of them are not on the level that some of the guys are and sure. I, I that's they're just not as you know, there have been over time there have been women who are but but right in this moment sure. It doesn't feel like that. I also love watching Pliskova play. And she's yeah. so much fun to watch. I, I always feel like she's at war with herself and you wish that she could just not be at war with herself, yeah. but I love her game.
0: I also imagine at this stage, it's probably difficult for you to bend your knees much like her. So you feel some relationship yeah, <laughs> uh, with her. You're like, I do that. Um, all right. I'll rapid fire here for the, down the home stretch. You just tell me if you're in or out on this American tennis player. You, we already did the
1: Opelka talk. Francis Tiafo, in or out? I'm uh, in. As a storyteller, how could you not be in? I mean, yeah, it's the best 100. story in the world. I would, I would like the forehand to be more consistent. Yeah. But I mean, how? That's the best story. In, that's the best story in tennis. I it's couldn't a dream. Read. It's a novel. It's incredible.
0: Oh, it's, that's what I'm saying between him and like Tommy Paul's incredibly good looking. So you're like, there's another bite at the apple and he's top 40 in the world. Now, here's the one I would throw at you, though. Americans love dynasties. The Corda family sebastian amazing. it's now, crazy like, oh, amazing right. i know
1: i know i saw that kid play in co- a college match on tv once yeah. and i was like how is there another one <laughs> uh like how is that guy Darren, inc- yes obviously <laughs> like that's just an amazing that's just an, an incredible and an amazing thing um he must be f- good at golf too yeah
0: <laughs> It's probably just ridiculous. And I bet they're good at tennis. Like, I bet they can hang, too, when it comes to Of pets. course
1: they're good at tennis. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're, she's the best golfer in the whole world. Like, they're, yeah. they're, the skills translate. Oh, it's crazy. And
0: so I'll assume in on Corda. What's your take on Brooksby?
1: Uh, uh, we, you mentioned Tommy Paul a second ago, so oh, I want to talk yeah. about Tommy. I have a question for you, which is yeah. – Uh, Brooksby, I don't, I've only watched a couple matches. Like I, I'm not, I watched recently uh, a a match. I don't think I have a strong enough take yet.
0: Okay. But Uh, give me the Tommy Paul take.
1: Well, I watched him. I mean, I am really a pathetic tennis junkie. So like (laughs) when it's. I've watched it too much. Uh, Acapulco quarterfinals. Much it's world... on. Yeah, it's on. Oh, but I just watched too much world team tennis. Even <laughs> like when they did that world team tennis thing, at the end of the year, I watched every match. Yeah, And uh, like, I like that he tried yeah. like Tommy Paul was trying yeah. like a lot of people don't try really in the world team tennis format. Mm-hmm. And he tried in every match I thought. <laughs> and I like really, cause yes, the dude's like too good looking and got everything going for him. 24 years old. And uh, I like the idea because Connors would have. it is is the thing. Like Jimmy would have tried. Like he would have given it. And Tommy Paul seems like he gives it. Like I think that guy wants to be great. I can't tell if, you know, in a world of giants. I mean, that's why. Sh- uh, pronounce Dennis Shapovalov. How do you pronounce Shapovalov? Sh- so Dennis Shapovalov, like it's incredible, right, that that guy's able to hang with his physical stature compared to these other people. It's crazy to me. It's so beautiful. Like that, I mean, he literally has to jump to get leverage over the backhand, the one-handed backhand. So Tommy Paul's not really a physical specimen like those other dudes, right? He's I not, would
0: disagree five. there, and I know. So Barrett, I mean, first of all, the future of modern tennis, and this is something we've discussed before. I'll just have to have you back on. We can do this in part two. The big man, I mean, Medvedev, Zverev, Tsitsipas is six four, FAA is six four, Hachanov's of the world. Is Tommy welcome.
1: Paul? I thought Tommy Paul was smaller. so he's he like six big?
0: two. He's six two. Oh, okay. Fine. My thing Good. is though, just the fluidity. Like Tommy makes everything on a court look so easy, and it's just about for him been finding that consistency as it is for any 22 three-year-old in life but wins his first title at the end of last year and I agree with you you can just tell these past six months something has clicked like he is you you, there's just an aura around him where it's just it all he makes it look so easy
1: Uh, yeah uh, you know you What's his weapon? What's the weapon? Like, if I think about all those other things? The there's a very They're... clear weapon.
0: So the plan A is not there right now. That's the thing. Plan B, C, D, he's got that all. He can read. He can react. He can hit the plus one forehand. And he does have the athleticism, the springiness to snap off a ball down the line and go flat. The problem is that's when the errors pile in. And so I would say it's in the Gofen model. That's probably the best case scenario for him would be a David Gofen type of career. Yeah.
1: I mean, I would love it. Look, I really want an American, like Johnny Mac talks about, I mean, it would be, I just, I really want a men's American a men's American champion and that will bring tennis all the way back. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, our country's just uh, endless <laughs> racism and mono- misogyny pre- even prevented, the, you know, when the Williams sisters were dominant for 20 years from it, that being enough to bring America all the way back in tennis. We need a, a but because of the ills of our country, if, if one of these dudes does it, we'll be in, you know, in better yeah. shape.
0: No, I agree. And sadly, I agree with you, despite the fact, you know, again, women's side absolutely loaded right now. L.A. versus New York tennis. Give me
1: the lowdown. Uh, as a lifelong, com- you know, <laughs> New Yorker loyal to my bones. I mean, there's just no comparison. Like <laughs> L.A. is just so much better for tennis. You can play every day yeah. outside all the time. I mean, it's not. Yeah, anyone who's in, like, this is what, one of the, that we get, like, one of the things that's just underappreciated is that Johnny Mac did that from Long Island, New York. It's so crazy from Douglas and Queens. Like, you really can only play a few months of the year outside, and, and it's, you know, half the year. I mean, half the year, he would have to go to Port Washington and play with Tony <laughs> Palifax. Like, there wasn't the competition. It's just his, raw, his brilliance and his athleticism were so transcendently great that he could figure it out mostly from here it's kind of uh an unheard of thing Mm
0: -hmm. what's the more enjoyable scene of the two definitely la it's just got to be everyone's happier
1: well like la you know i was a big skeptic so i was just out there shooting super pump for six months Mm and uh I was a big live ball skeptic at first, but live ball is like the most fun you can have on a tennis court (laughs) and nobody on the East coast even knows what that is. Like I've tried to bring it to place. Nobody knows what live ball is Uh, in New York. Nobody, no, I play in every, in, you know, every place in New York you can play. I go and like, nobody's heard of it. And in LA, you know, every night you could basically find a live ball going and you could get in there and get exercise and have a great time playing live ball. I I don't understand why it hasn't come to New York yet. I'm the, the place I play in the summer. Uh, uh, I'm determined to bring it there this summer, and 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 get some guys like find a night where we can get a good live ball going.
0: Who lies about their level more,
1: people in LA or New York? Okay, this is a deeper question because in LA, <laughs> I'm a four two five, not a four five. In New okay, York, I'm a i a four five because because just but it's not lying. It's like if you mm-hmm. think about the way clubs are organized, sure. I think it's. I think you get to your true what you are pretty quick in, in any either place. It's just that you can be playing it, like because the, the okay because the descriptors make all of us actually like five. If you look at those descriptors, you you can hit spin from both sides. You can hit all the serves. You have all the strokes. Like we're then everyone's a five o. We all <laughs> everyone can do those things. Yeah, but because the real so so then you have to look at it and like four fives in L A are really close to five o. Mm-hmm. Four fives in LA, like there are guys I know who played tennis at college, D three, who would identify as four fives. Mm-hmm. Where they're really five o's here in New York, they would be playing on a five o court probably. But 100%. they're, but you know, I can take like, I have one friend who's much better than me, but I was able to take a couple sets off of him. He played college, mm-hmm. like, but and that's why I think he's like a four or five in LA. He'd be a five o here. But like the guys in LA who are five o's. I can't take a set. I just there's zero chance I could take a set. I just nothing. It could never you just could never break for me enough that I could even if I served out of my mind, it wouldn't matter. I eventually would just lose. Whereas,
0: no, I would say the difference is a former college tennis player in L.A. played at San Diego, a former college tennis player in New York played at Colgate. I'm not trying right. to be disrespectful to Colgate, but no, that's the Colgate. No, my
1: friend Peter, my friend Peter played at Connecticut College. Sure, exactly. And he's a four-five. That's why he would say he's a four-five, not a five-o. Like he's great, but he played at Connecticut College. He didn't play uh he didn't play D1. No,
0: a hundred percent. I would agree with you. Last one for you. More difficult partnership. First time in doubles or first time writing together.
1: Oh, well, my partner and I have been best friends since we were kids, and he's the only person I really write with. So, <laughs> yeah, okay. like, I, we're, that's very easy. We also have really good doubles partners. Mm. Um, yeah, no, doubles is, look, I, I much prefer singles because I hate letting down my teammate. <laughs> okay. But live ball helps. Like, live ball, you know, you're constantly switching partners. Yeah. You're in it. You're trying really hard. I got much. LA, L.A. made me a much, much, much better doubles player because I played so much live ball out there. Mm-hmm.
0: So, yeah, no, again, I, I got to see the game. This is what it's telling me. I need the film. I got to break down the session. Uh, I got to see what the weapon is. Sounds like the inside out forehand. Again, that's the setup shot for you. Um, and again, it sounds like given the Pliskova of a love, the movement might be a bit lacking. Uh, what,
1: but, uh, what level do you play at?
0: I mean, I'd be... I am a, if I play four or five, oh, it's Midwest tennis. So we're here in Indianapolis. So it's like the in between. David Foster I'm, Wallace. You're David yeah,
1: Foster Wallace tennis. Uh,
0: yeah. I'm essentially, it's a very good comp for me down to, again, I need to shave. Um, But you look for Midwest tennis. I mean, I'm a 5 0. I'd be lying if I said I was a four or five. I played club in college. I, you know, could have played at a smaller school or D3, but I really wanted to go to Michigan, so I went there instead. And, uh, you know, I, you, I, you get kicked out if you played club tennis at a, and played nationals, whatever. You have to play five o. That's just a USTA rule. I would say, I mean, on the good days, I am a five o. let me tell you. On the right day, it, it can still look good. You know, the shoulder's not what it once was. Um, I understand. And, yeah, and so you get there. Where I do say, you think well- – Yeah,
1: go ahead. ahead. No, you will say what? No, No, you know,
0: I before I left because I'm from Michigan and obviously, you know, the the community there, there are a lot of I don't want to say Brian Koppelman's of the world, but people like you who are looking for younger people to hit with. And those are my favorite tennis sessions because the passion, I think, of the 40 plus year old who still wants to get after it every day. It just makes for good tennis.
1: Last thing, because I got to I got to go is uh, how good do you think Wallace was? Great question.
0: 375, I would say. I, we really need the quarter increments. I don't think he was a 4-0. Like, I think you read his perspective. That's someone who's a little envious
1: of a good forehand. I think he was a 4-0. I think he was a 4-0, not a 4, maybe not a 4-5, but I bet you he beat some four fives. Yeah. <laughs> with the old, just with the old mental ability. All right uh here if you want to wrap it up
0: yeah I going to say no i appreciate it as always my friend and i'm very grateful for you taking the time to chat spot is open for you on the show this anytime was,
1: ha, yeah have me back i want to come back after uh have me back after a major uh, thanks a lot this was super fun
0: Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with co-creator of Showtime's Billions and Super Pumped, Brian Koppelman. If you have a Showtime subscription, I promise you, tune into his new show, Super Pumped. I watched the pilot episode on Sunday. It was really exciting, and I mean, Uber, something I imagine many of us listening to this podcast, myself included, use, I don't want to say extraordinarily frequently, but whether you're out in the town with your friends, you don't want to drive somewhere because of what you might be doing, or maybe it's just Uber Eats, you're ordering two your house, something you have to do when a broadcast ends at 10.30 p.m. on a Tuesday night. If you're doing those sorts of things, I promise you're going to enjoy this story. You're going to certainly enjoy the performances, whether it's people like Joseph Gordon-Levitt or Kyle Chandler. I'm not going to sell the show. I don't need to. It's a Brian Koppelman show. You're going to watch it. You're going to enjoy it. And hopefully we'll have the chance to have him back on as well, because hopefully, as all of you listeners can tell, That's a tennis mind, folks. You know it when you hear it. You know it when you see it. You can't fake passion, enthusiasm for this sport. It's clear he's got it. That's why he's gone on other tennis podcasts. Hopefully, we'll be able to have him back on this podcast or maybe on our mini break or GSP as an analyst moving forward as well. Of course, if you're looking for the latest and greatest, I know this is more big picture conversation, but if you're looking for the latest and greatest happenings in the tennis world, hop on over to our other podcast, mini break podcast feed, great shot podcast feed, which you can listen to wherever you listen to your podcast, Of course, if you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at AL Gruskin. A shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, who as you can tell has a f- of an editing job to do day in, day out in particular on this podcast. With all that said, for our fantastic guest, Brian Koppelman, our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You've been listening to another edition of the Crack Interviews Podcast. Stay safe, stay healthy. Talk to you all soon. Thanks, everyone.